In September 2018, when she was the religion writer for Vox, Tara Isabella Burton published a provocative piece with a memorable headline. Do you remember it? CrossFit is my church. In short, the article argued, there's an emergent cohort of people, often millennials or Gen Z, but not always, who choose not to go to church on Sunday or to mosque on Friday evening or to synagogue on Saturday morning, and yet simultaneously do commit to going to CrossFit or yoga classes at 6 a.m., five days a week. And in her new book, Strange Rites, New Religions for a Godless World, Tara gets into that restless quest, which is increasingly more than just a fad. She looks at a wide-ranging sample of Americans, not just young people, who are digitally connected in unprecedented ways and who self-identify as nuns, that is, having no religion when pollsters call to ask. Yet despite no religion, many are channeling deep spiritual interest and putting energy into non-traditional spiritual outlets. What's the data tell us? One in five Americans today self-describes as a religious nun, and among millennials and Gen Z, it's just north of one in three. Tara is joined today by Jack Jenkins, a fellow journalist at Religion News Service, to talk about some of the down-to-earth practices of this rising cohort, from CrossFitters who gather together in person, to those participating in the occult, assisted by Tumblr or other e-technologies to enhance seances or constellations of called-up spirits, sometimes even tied directly to real-time twists and turns in American politics, as Tara explains. Of CrossFit, one participant says, it's like a cleanse, it's definitely spiritual for me. And for many others chasing down new religion, Tara argues a growing distrust of institutions joins an intensely individual quest for personal wellness. That search, of course, echoes 19th century new thought and transcendentalists, but the amount of time we spend today on screens gives some of these smaller disparate movements connectivity and staying power. Jack Jenkins, meanwhile, has also just published a book, American Prophets, The Religious Roots of Progressive Politics and the Ongoing Fight for the Soul of the Country. Jack chronicles a vivid story of the religious left, far lesser known in contemporary politics than its conservative counterpart on the right. From abolition to women's suffrage, from labor reform to civil rights, he shows how impossible it is to divorce many public advocacy campaigns in recent memory from religious conviction and belief. And in all this, Tara and Jack are both savvy to the conundrum faced by many religion reporters who write for major outlets. So many outlets that have a religion reporter have this sort of one person and kind of go like, all right, religion, like, go, we want you to cover everything about white evangelicals and Trump and also everything about the Catholic sex abuse scandals and also everything about witches and yoga and everything about the Muslim community and then problems of Islamophobia in America. And that sure, that's that sort of in one way that is indeed doable in that one could write about a variety of things. But I think that when you think about like, would a paper ever have one reporter be like, you're our one politics person, go. Or you're our Europe person, go. In a way where I think that it's not just that everywhere should have a religion reporter, but ideally everywhere should have multiple religion reporters with different specialties. And there's sort of the, the odd in-between state of being a religion reporter where you're bringing to your reporting a, a degree of expertise, a degree of fluency in talking about certain issues. As these two journalists argue, religion is all around us, 
including when it comes in the form of strange rights or through activism campaigns aimed at race relations and other reform. Enjoy the conversation. Each of you guys are reporters coming at this work rather than columnists writing philosophy or theologian-centric work. How did that affect your telling of these stories? So one of the things that I was really keen to do in Strange Rights was describe a group of people or several groups of people while sort of, I'm sure, pure neutrality is impossible, but at least give people their own voices, their own, allow them to describe themselves in their own words. A fear I had, and I think perhaps a founded one indeed, is that writing a book called Strange Rights about practices that might not be familiar to a lot of readers, witchcraft, say, or, or whether it's in intense fan groups or people who are in polyamorous compounds, I didn't want it to be a sort of freak show or look at these weird people doing weird things. And I wanted very much to foreground that these are people who are looking at spirituality, looking at community, looking at ritual in ways that are perhaps different, although I'd argue indicative of a wider cultural change. They're examples that are perhaps a bit more extreme than the average, but not different from a a wider shift that we're seeing. And I think the reporter part of me was always keen at every stage to let people tell their own stories as much as possible. And Jack, you and reporting on the religious left, you've been doing this for since 2011. How's that frame how you engage with a group in Charlottesville or someplace else in the country? Yeah, I mean, similar to Tara, I mean, one of the things, my book is essentially based off of a foundation of reporting that I've done for near a decade of like kind of going into these organizations and these meeting these leaders and kind of getting to know them in a raw journalistic exchange, right? And one of the things that I often found to be the case is that people just didn't believe that these communities existed or that these communities or these leaders had already had impact in our body politic, not just through you know, decades and throughout American history, but really in contemporary American history as well. And so in writing the book, I actually had to scale back some of the ways that I would write things because... I wanted the reader to be able to experience them as these are factually true accounts of what these communities have done. I'm not necessarily the first person to reference them or to tell these stories in a journalistic sense, although sometimes I am, but that people can recognize these as a verified contemporary history, as it were. It also shaped my approach to the book, too, because there are certainly, you know, things I would like to write about these communities. There's certainly, you know, thoughts and opinions I have about them. And I do some analysis in the book about what's really happening here. But like Tara, I wanted to scale that back a bit and let people talk in their own voice, even if their visions of religion or faith or activism or politics might not jive with me or with other activists in the exact same space, including one within their own movement, as it were. I wanted them to be able to articulate themselves in their own way and then let the reader kind of make up their mind with regard to how they respond to these people and movements. So it would be a misnomer to refer to it as like this tabula rasa. I'm just presenting you this in a vacuum, this information. But I did want to do as much work as possible for the reader to help them understand these people on their own terms. Well, maybe we can get into strange rights a little bit first and then talk about American Prophets second. You know, the subtitle of your book, Strange Rights, is New Religions for a Godless World. And we've all heard a lot about the rise of the nuns and the trends with millennials and Gen Z being less connected to traditional religion. 
but you tell a story that has some really radical twists and turns along the way, you know, strange pockets that I think a lot of people haven't heard of on the one hand. And on the other, you talk about new thought from 19th century and about Emerson and some of these trends picking up on longstanding American impulses toward renewal. Is this a book about new and strange rights or is this about continuity? I'd say it's a book about both is a bit of the cheat answer, but I say something radically new basically because of the internet and because of the technological shifts that have made an existing pendulum swing we've already seen in the American historical religious landscape all the more extreme. So I think you're right that the part that I see as continuity is this tension between what I call by necessity, reductively institutionalist and intuitionalist strains of religious life, your sort of uh, civil slash religious institutions on the one hand, your Protestant mid-century, your basically church as not officially a state church, but unofficially a state church, national anthem in the hymnal, institutionalism on the one hand, and then the sort of strains of intuitionalism, rather, you see in both, as you say, movements like uh, the transcendentalists or, or the spiritualists or new thought, but also in various great awakenings, your circuit rioters, your tent revivalists, that sort of generally say something along the lines of, these institutions are dead, we're, we're just going through the motions, we need to reclaim an internal relationship with God, a personal relationship with God, with the divine so on and so forth. So that I think is, is very much a part of the American religious tradition and always has been. What's new, I think, is that the way in which internet culture, the way in which we're all content creators and consumers at the same time, where with the rise of personal internet, with the rise of the fan culture, the fan fiction culture, and the sort of mix and match bricolage culture that I would argue defines both millennials and Gen Z. And it's worth saying here that the uh, religiously unaffiliated go from 24% of the general population to 36% of people born after 1985, and pretty much holds true for millennials and Zoomers. So we are talking very much about a generational phenomenon. I think when you do grow up in this sort of internet space, where you're so used to everything being individualized, mixed and matched, everything you, you read, you consume, your podcasts, your news, your the movies you watch are sort of calibrated to you by a series of algorithms that say, you liked this, you would like that. That lends itself to a, a cultural tendency towards kind of making your own religion, mixing and matching from an array of traditions. And I think that sort of bricolage element is distinctive to the internet age. That's the area in which it's new. You sort of open the book with this story of participation and the yearning for participation and involvement as opposed to sort of distant, stodgy religious experience. And then there's this tale of Catland in Brooklyn. So uh, telling. Tell us about what that was all about and how that reflects Strange Rights. Sure. So again, a little bit of background. Um, more generally, when we uh, this book is about the not just the religiously unaffiliated, 72% of which, it should be said, uh, say they believe in some higher power, 20% of which say they believe in the God of the Bible, but also it's sort of this broader category of remixed, which also includes people who might belong on paper, tick the box of a certain religious tradition, but whose beliefs and practices are more eclectic. Uh, example here, 30% of, of Christians, uh, self-reported Christians, say they believe in reincarnation. You have these remixed are this flexible category of people who are including various, not just trying sort of new religious traditions, but also mixing, matching existing ones. And with that background, one of the most popular phenomena, both as a sort of 
religious practice in and of itself and as something that is sort of added to other religious traditions or no traditions is this sort of modern occultism sort of makes it sound uh, slightly spookier than it, than it needs to be. But the sort of umbrella of witchcraft, neo-pagan traditions, Wicca as a religion proper, et cetera, et cetera. As of 2014, there are already about a million self-identified witches in America. It was the fastest growing religious tradition, if you don't count the nuns as a tradition. As of 2016, there was this, basically everything kicked into even higher gear in the wake of Trump's election, in particular, witch imagery, both as a sort of aesthetic, as a practice, whether it's tarot cards or sage cleansing or at-home rituals, became really culturally resonant with particularly young, progressive, mostly women, but also uh, non-binary people, also some men in that, in that group as well, also quite popular with queer people. And anyone who felt that the alliance of white evangelicalism and Trumpism that seemed to be kind of coalescing in, in November 2016, and they did, needed to be responded to with a very powerful symbol set language that kind of not only was its own thing, it wasn't Christianity, but was placing itself in opposition to a particular, arguably patriarchal vision of Christian life. So the witch, the sort of archetypical nasty woman, rather, became quite popular as the symbol. Uh, there's a whole sort of host of books published about magical activism, the witch as this sort of activist figure. If you just sort of look from 2006 to 16, rather, to now, there's every couple of months, there's those basic witches, just as Zimmerman and Jaya Saxena's book, there's Sarah Lyons's book, so on and so forth. Um, so within this wider trend, it really reached a kind of new peak in fall 2018, around the time that Brett Kavanaugh was undergoing these controversial hearings for the Supreme Court. And various strains of kind of witch culture, which had also been about giving language to disillusionment with the patriarchy, giving language to, and again, this is also after the Me Too movement, which is another thing that happened around that time, witch activism became this sort of vehicle of mass catharsis. So this brings us then to Catland, which is a bookstore and a teaching space and magical store in Brooklyn and Bushwick, where that's become a kind of New York epicenter for that movement. They hosted, they've been doing Trump hexes, other rituals pretty regularly, but this Hex Kavanaugh movement, which they were going to do, they advertise, they have about 50 seats. It's a tiny, tiny room about the size of this living room. They had about 10,000 people sign up. And it became this, this thing of like, we're going to get together. We're going to hex Brett Kavanaugh. And also it was around Halloween, which meant it got a sort of extra news bump of it being like a vaguely spooky, witchy Halloween story. And suddenly it was perhaps disproportionately covered by, by every news outlet. But for the people who came, the whole ritual was not just about hexing Kavanaugh, but about hexing all rapists, about kind of expressing rage at oppressors more generally, about this kind of collective outpouring of grief. And that, I think, was such a powerful moment because it showed exactly how this kind of collective effervescence comes about through a combination of political community, but also religious practice, but itself a religious practice that's not rooted, it wasn't rooted in Wicca specifically, it was not rooted in any one pagan tradition, but in this kind of, again, fluid mixing and matching, we'll, we'll call upon this deity from this pantheon and this deity from this other pantheon. Because at the core, we're trying to get to some sort of 
vision of female power that doesn't necessarily need to rest on the specific truth claims or the specific theology of a specific pantheon. So I, th- I think it was a very representative 2018 incident. It's interesting. I mean, I feel like it's easier to get our arms around that because of the, the political peg you can hang something on. We all remember that. I wonder how much this sort of politicization of culture more generally acts as an anchor that translates religious impulses or human instincts toward self-expression, toward the divine, toward other things. I know Jack talks about in his book covering the gamut of experience from the awfulness of abuse and human depravity on the one hand to incredible reflections of, of yearning for racial reconciliation, for poverty alleviation and other things. Jack, feel free to get in. I'll just add preliminarily, I mean, there are two things there. One, I mean, what I think is fascinating about Kara's chapter kind of on these Wicca and self-identified witches, I mean, a million people is bigger than entire progressive Christian denominations in the United States. I mean, that's like some of the big stalwart progressive Christian denominations are fewer than that. And this is anecdotally, this doesn't come up in my book, but I have in often in my reporting when encountering progressive pastors, particularly including progressive queer identified pastors who read tarot cards. That's just like a thing that's attached to them. So while they may not identify with that movement, they still clearly seem to be impacted and affected by it. And then to your second point, kind of about the galvanizing force that politics can have on faith, it can create increased reasons for gathering. So for instance, one anecdote that didn't make it into the book is that at Union Theological Seminary, which is one of the traditionally progressive Christian seminaries in the United States, after Barack Obama was elected back in 2008, apparently there was a spontaneous worship service that was convened in the chapel there of a celebration of his election. And after Trump was elected in 2016, there was apparently a spontaneous worship service of mourning that very quickly occurred in that space. And I think that is a small micro example of what I seem to find throughout a lot of the progressive religious communities that I reported on is that a lot of them saw explosions, if not gathering of funding or of attention given to them because they would say something about Trump or Kavanaugh or Mike Pence. And so I do think that is an interesting catalyst for religious expression that Tara identifies as well. You talk about the age of Aquarius to the age of Trump and in the same, same sort of vein. And I think a lot of what you're doing in the book, it seems like it's about resisting institutions or distrusting institutions and yearning instead for self-expression, for being able to create my own version, for being able to draw on goop, whether it's from Gwyneth Paltrow, Alex Jones, it's the same stuff, I think you say. How about that sort of performative aspect? Is that is that tied to age and life cycle, something you do in your 20s and 30s, or is it deeper than that? When you say performative aspect. Institutions, they say, are formative, right? Self-expressions and my Instagram, Tumblr account that you talk about, Facebook and Twitter and other things are expressive. They're, they're performative. They're not formative, performative. So if you're living there primarily out of that sort of performative impulse, is there a way in which this is kind of a detour and acting out in a stage of rebellion? Or is this deeper and more permanent than that? I don't think so. I mean, I think it is more permanent. I think certainly like there is, sure, it is fair to say that some of it is purely performative. I would maybe term it as communal rather than performative, that it's something about connecting with people who who share your values and kind of reaffirming and reifying those values in community, which is what I think a lot of performance does. So I, I don't think it's something sort of quite as alienated from the self as, as performance as perhaps we colloquially understand it. But that said, I think that the 
public mistrust of institutions, not just religious institutions, but our civic institutions, our media, certainly our police force. There has been such a kind of much broader sense that the civic centers of American uh, political, spiritual life are have been so derelict in their duty. And I think that what that is something that is not going to be remedied by everybody turning 40. And I think that the the sort of inward turn that happens, I think that there's a very tempting narrative and some often perhaps more conservative writers and thinkers I've spoken to when they hear about what my book is about, they're kind of like, oh, it's about those millennials and their avocado toast and how selfish and narcissistic they are. And, and like, I think that that is, I can see why that might be a reading, but the way that I would want to frame the phenomenon is like, when your institutions have failed you, when you can't trust or don't feel like you can trust your political establishment, your journalistic establishment, your scientific establishment, what could be more natural than an inward turn to focus on your own feelings, your own gut, your own instincts as authoritative and as the best arbiter of truth you have available to you? So I think that the performative aspect of kind of these sort of cultures, while it exists insofar as it is maybe true of all 20-somethings ever, all humans ever, I think it's it's more true to say that we're looking at a story of institutional failure, including people who are in many cases traditionally marginalized by religious spaces. I mean, I think it's worth saying that uh, 46% of unaffiliated, religiously unaffiliated Americans identify as queer, again, compared to about 23, 24% of the general population. Why would you not turn inward when no external arbiter of uh, authority of truth seems to be holding up their end? One real takeaway for me from a couple of those chapters was like the disconnect that exists between traditional religious churches and synagogues and mosques, sometimes from their origins, from their radical and miraculous and highly participatory origins is perhaps part of the part of the story here. The other piece, of course, was the commercialization part. You know, you talk about our tradition says that where your treasure is, your heart will be also. And there's a lot of money in this, too. There's a commercialized aspect where stores are willing to to market accordingly. Any last sort of comments on that piece before we turn to the sort of broader? Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that I find most fascinating is the way in which certain values, both what is often derisively called virtue signaling, but sort of, I would say, a aspiration of values or an aspiration of wellness have replaced the sort of traditional things that like advertising is supposed to sell you. Like think of, I'm thinking about the era of Mad Men, you were selling wealth, you were selling sex, you were selling, I think it was 1989, the Gillette ad that's the best a man can be, or sorry, the best a man can get, rather, the the rugged guy who's getting all the girls because of his sexy shaving beard thing. Whereas now we have the 2018 Super Bowl Gillette ad was the best a man can be. It was this sort of anti-toxic masculinity ad. There's the Elizabeth Arden Red Door Salon, which was for so many years this sort of bastion of a certain kind of glamour rebranded as mind, M-Y-N-D. The tagline was a self-care journey you can confidently say is my, that actually didn't last. They shut down over the pandemic. But I think that it's telling that the images of both sort of moral purity, of social justice, and of kind of spiritual fulfillment are things that brands know that they can use to sell product. I think that is, it, it reveals a sort of wider spiritual hunger, albeit one that is not necessarily going to be satisfied by self-care journeys you can constantly say are my. My last point is that there was a, a study by um, Vice's branding arm, which is actually named Virtue. That is a, a true fact. Did not know that. <laughs> 
uh, they did a 2018 study and they basically, these overwhelming numbers, I think it was something like 72% of the millennials they surveyed, they want brands that they feel speak to their soul. They want brands that reflect their values. And, and I, I don't remember the exact numbers, but they were, they're extremely high. And it was this, this idea that like, both that there's enough of a hunger that there is a quote unquote market for spiritual and moral community and affirmation, but also that the expectation, the implicit expectation is, and we'd love to be able to spend our money and buy these things. So I think that reveals sort of both the perhaps optimistic spiritual hunger and the slightly pessimistic, we're all in a capitalist hell world side of the situation. Speaking of marketing to the soul or reaching out to the soul in particular, can't help notice, Jack, that you're the subtitle of your book, The Religious Roots of the Progressive Politics and the Ongoing Fight for the Soul of the Country, dovetails rather nicely with the vice president's current go, <laughs> right? How's I was going to point out we had that first, <laughs> but it happened to be the same idea, right? Like that's part of the subtext there. Sorry, go ahead. No, no. Did you get a deal? I mean, did they come to you and sort of, <laughs> no. <laughs> you gave away nation, but not country? Yeah, basically, basically. The religious left, it seems to me more broadly, is often not as familiar to traditional politicos and to people maybe on the center right. Why is that? You know, you've been covering it for a decade. What's sort of the infrastructure that exists in the religious left for, let's just maybe talk about race a little bit? There's a few things going on there. One of them is something that Tara has encountered in her work as well, which is that there's just not a lot of coverage of these communities, right? There's just a dearth of religion reporting in general and religion reporters in particular, and they're not necessarily focusing on the religious left. Instead, they've traditionally focused on the religious right, which to be fair is this series of organizations that spent decades building power and often, but not always, but often operate as this sort of machine politics style apparatus within the right that exudes disproportionate power on the Republican Party. The difference about the religious left is, I would argue, that there is nothing on the left in general, religious or otherwise, that looks like the religious right. Because the modern left, as compared to historical different versions of the left, is often formed as this sort of coalition of coalitions, sometimes with competing ideologies and agendas. And the religious left is yet another coalition of coalitions within that. And so it is more difficult to pin down. It has far more leaders and different organizations than you would find in the religious right. And it's significantly more diverse, both racially, but also religiously. And so there's a lot of work that goes into actually unpacking all that it is. Now, that doesn't mean that it hasn't exuded influence throughout American history. People often point to, say, the abolitionist movement or the civil rights movement or actually the early labor movement that gave birth to what we now call the progressive movement. All of those were deeply religious, particularly Christian in their origin, with pastors being the ones that were helping lead a lot of those efforts. The difference is that the modern religious left isn't necessarily tied just to clergy, for one, and two, that the rotating band of clergy that helps lead these different organizations have often different emphases, right? So I cover these different organizations and movements in my book that overlap, but often have different concerns. So for instance, there's the New Sanctuary Movement, which is when religious entities, houses of worship, take in undocumented immigrants and allow them to live in their worship spaces in direct defiance of federal law. And that's a thing that a congregation takes on. There's a whole network of faith communities that support them in that effort. And there's certain figures that have become prominent, both undocumented immigrants and faith leaders in that movement. And then, of course, there's a whole different movement, which is the indigenous rights movement, where that has dovetailed and overlapped heavily with the environmentalism movement and the combating climate change. And people just 
don't realize that when we talked about Standing Rock back in 2015 and 2016, when indigenous activists protested the erection of the Dakota Access Pipeline, those activists were unequivocally and unapologetically religious. You know, they would, be, they would invoke indigenous spirituality as driving their activism, referring to protecting sacred land. But that wasn't covered very often as a religious element. It wasn't covered as something that people thought of as a intersection of religion and politics in the United States. So these movements, whether it was that, and then of course, you do have prominent moments like when Pope Francis writes an encyclical on the environment. That was covered as this religious element. And there was all of this media attention given to him. One thing that I heard a lot from environmental groups that are rooted in faith here in the United States, what I heard at the time is sort of like, well, we're really glad that the Pope has gotten on board with what we've been writing for quite some time. And to be fair, the Catholic Church has actually been pretty consistent on its environmental ethic. But I say all that because some of these organizations have continued to be advocates operating under the radar from quite some time, and people just haven't noticed what they've done, which is why many people aren't aware that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez decided to run for office, according to her, because she had a spiritual experience at Standing Rock, and that that moment was what apparently catalyzed her to go back to New York and decide to run for office, then author the Green New Deal, et cetera, et cetera. And these Spiritual stories aren't told in the same way or to the same audiences as the religious rights are. And so we often miss the activism of these groups. I mean, it's, it's really hard to sort of overgeneralize and to categorize, especially comparing left and right. Do you see on the religious left lesser vocabulary about the religious element, about sort of the prophetic impulse and instincts, or really not so much? And, and I guess why is it that like sometimes when religious moments that are prophetic are covered in the mainstream press. They don't get the religion part so right. I'm thinking, for example, of a, a story where a Pentecostal large group of congregations prayed outside of the Capitol, and they prayed that God would slay every member of the Capitol with right conviction about the next steps on immigration and on abortion and other things. And that was written up in, in a way that sort of clearly talked about slaying a little bit Fearfully, maybe they misheard. I mean, they don't want everybody to be killed. Of course, this is about sort of being slain in the spirit. Or famously, when President Bush was running for office, he made a comment about not taking the log out of his own eye before worrying about the speck in someone else's. And a reporter said, I think that has something to do with a new sort of interpretation of the pot not calling the kettle black, not referencing it at all. You know, so I'm, I'm just I'm curious about sort of your sense as to why, if at all, religion is often or can be misunderstood, perhaps particularly with the religious left by reporters. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that is a axiom among us religion reporters pretty regularly is that there's just not enough religion reporters and there's not enough reporters with religious acumen or expertise. And I mean, you just miss certain things. And to be fair, religion, one, is incredibly difficult to define. I applaud Tara's efforts to do so in, the, in her book, which inevitably all efforts to like to define religion are, are deeply criticized, which is why in the beginning of my book, I refused to do so, which is a bit of a cop-out. But it was like, again, it's such a wide field. Yeah, you've got to tell us your four criteria, Tara, before we get off. It's like such this broad topic for which there's multiple permutations and getting saliency in each one is its own project in a lot of ways. And so I understand that it's a heavy lift for a reporter to have to learn those sorts of things. But honestly, you should expect a reporter to get the best knowledge they can of their subject every time they report on something. And so I think that's an element and a criticism I think a lot of us have of media in general, is we just wish there was more religious fluency in newsrooms. 
Now, in addition to that, I do think there are elements to which the religious left, because sometimes they lead movements among progressives. For instance, they've been particularly effective at leading a lot of movements underneath Trump. And I think part of that comes from the religious left's tendency to be very effective at advocacy and protest. So many of the communities that exist within the religious left are marginalized or don't have the same access to power that, say, the religious right does. So while the religious right really actualizes power, say, at the ballot box or in the courts, the religious left has proven itself most effective by using the method of protest, which is often the method of affecting power that is available to those who do not have direct access to very powerful institutions. But because you have these sorts of demonstrations and activists that are really part and parcel of the religious left, sometimes they can get obscured within other broader progressive movements, right? So people saw the Women's March as this broader progressive movement. And the fact that um, Linda Sarsour is one of the four co-chairs of the Women's March, and she had made her career in many ways as an interfaith and as a Muslim activist for uh, Muslim affairs and Muslim concerns, those sorts of things can get obscured. Because as previously mentioned, the left is this coalition of coalitions. And so you think of it as this broader thing, not just as a religious movement. And I think part of it really does come down to a third element, which is that the religious right was very effective at helping own the concept of religion in the public square. And that affected not only the way conservatives think about religion, but but arguably it affected how liberals or centrists or moderates think about religion as well, because they started using the rubrics that they define, for instance, for religious liberty. You will hear that conversation, that term, you know, articulated around issues of LGBT rights or abortion, and less used when, say, a mosque is burned down. And I think that's evidence of the impact of the religious right, which was representing their own concerns, which they argue were explicitly religious, but may not map perfectly onto many of these communities that operate within the religious left. I mean, I think that Something that I was really struck by, I think Jack and I have had similar experiences in that as a religion reporters, the first thing is there need to be more of us. It would be, and sometimes there is that sort of game you play of just like watching the secular media often cover certain political events. And there is that sort of sense of, oh, that's how you cover that. I mean, I think there was something years ago where Pope Francis gave a talk about structural sin and environmentalism and racism and kind of sins of the community rather than the individual. And the headline was uh, recycle or go to hell, says Pope. And you just want to sort of facepalm. And I think that something that I've often experienced too is somewhere when, when I was working at Fox is I was the only religion reporter. And I think this is something that shout out to RNS here where this is not the case, but so many outlets that have a religion reporter have this sort of one person and kind of go like, all right, religion, like, go, we want you to cover everything about white evangelicals and Trump, and also everything about the Catholic sex abuse scandals, and also everything about witches and yoga, and everything about <laughs> the Muslim community, and then problems of Islamophobia in America. And that sure, that's that sort of, in one way, that is indeed doable, in that one could write about a variety of things. But I think that when you think about, like, would a paper ever have one reporter be like, you're our one politics person? Go. Or you're our Europe person, go, in a way where I think that it's not just that everywhere should have a religion reporter, but ideally everywhere should have multiple religion reporters with different specialties. And there's sort of the the odd in-between state of being a religion reporter where you're bringing to your reporting a, a degree of expertise, a degree of fluency in talking about certain issues, but at the same time, there's only so much one person could do. And I would just love to see 
religion reporting treated not just as a one-off, right? Yeah. Our religion guy. You know, I've been doing a little homework in this COVID season and Dean Baquet had this wonderful quote right after Trump gets elected where he says, we have a wonderful religion reporter, but she's all alone. I mean, she's fantastic, but she's all by herself basically. And we're missing a lot of what's going on in the country because in part, we don't get religion as a staff. It's very nice. And I learned too, for example, that when the Washington Post put their first ad out for a religion reporter, they were very clear to say, look, you don't have to be an expert in religion, okay? You don't have to be religious. You don't have to be an expert in religion. But then you start to think about it and it's like, well, you want somebody to have political competence if they're recovering politics. Similarly, on the environment, why would you not want any expertise in religion? So this is a this is a little bit of a conundrum, right? As uh, larger journalism outfits uh, struggle to integrate a broader religious appreciation literacy when it comes to uh, telling everyday stories. Well, look, so you guys tell some fantastic uh, stories and the chapters are very rich. Encourage picking up both books. Uh, Jack, I wonder because racial justice is so central right now, you might just tell the story about Charlottesville and, and Reverend Blackman, Cornell West, what happened there and were their roots afford any hope for us? Right. And it's been interesting given the reporting done for that chapter by myself and others looking at what has unfolded the last couple of months since the death of George Floyd at the hands of a police officer in Charlottesville in 2017. People, a lot of people know about that torchlight rally where you had white supremacists march in shouting, you will not replace us and encircle a group of students who were around a statue. What many people don't know is that across the street, while that was occurring, there was a worship service of about roughly a thousand faith leaders from across the country who were there specifically to gear up to counter-protest against white supremacists the next day. And preaching to them that night was Reverend Tracy Blackman. And she was introduced by Cornell West, who's a prominent academic, currently at Harvard Divinity School, but has bounced around many different institutions and is known both for his published works and his own activism. And so what was interesting about that is that one of the reasons that Tracy Blackman was there, and she was there the next day too, when a group of faith leaders actually stared down white supremacists as they tried to march into the square is because she had achieved a modicum of fame because of the activism that she had participated in in Ferguson back in 2014, following the killing of Michael Brown by a police officer there. And what was interesting is that the first activists on the scene in Ferguson weren't necessarily faith-led, as it were. Some might have been, but many it wasn't clergy who were the first to show up, Is that if that makes any sense. And it was this group of young activists who in many ways felt distant from the church. And when she showed up to be a part of their demonstrations, it ended up, that became the dynamic. She was showing up to their demonstrations, not the other way around. And this interesting theme developed over the course of um, the activism in Ferguson, where faith communities did end up playing some prominent roles. But in order for them to do that, a lot of clergy had to put themselves literally on the front lines of these demonstrations, sometimes physically in between police and demonstrators, sometimes being wounded. One pastor was actually shot with a rubber bullet when she was there, tried to de-escalate the situation between activists and protesters, as she had in multiple times over the course of the events in Ferguson. And so this pattern emerged where faith communities did end up showing up, and they did want to kind of be, be present. But it took a lot more of them on the front lines for them to earn back the trust of these primarily young Black activists. And then you fast forward 
to the George Floyd killing recently, a similar pattern emerged where it wasn't necessarily clergy in Minneapolis who were leading the demonstrations. Instead, you did see churches right down the street from where a lot of the activists were congregating open up their sanctuaries to allow those demonstrators to use their worship spaces as a safe haven, allow them to be treated by emergency medics. You saw, again, clergy in Ohio and other places who put themselves physically in between demonstrators and police and get shot with non-lethal projectiles. You saw clergy who were pepper sprayed on another part of Ohio, again, trying to earn back the credibility of activists, as opposed to it being presumed that clergy would lead these demonstrations. And then, of course, you end up at that incident that happened in Lafayette Square, where people were gathering outside of the White House, where they were cleared ahead of the president's famous or infamous, depending on your from persuasion, visit to St. John's Church, where he held up a Bible. And not only were clergy who were sitting on the front of that patio of that church cleared during that forced expulsion of people from that square. There were also clergy among the demonstrators who, again, were trying to put themselves in between those activists and police who also were expelled. And so I give that history to say that I think what's been interesting about the racial justice movement and the role of faith is that it has remained consistent insofar as there has been a faith presence in these demonstrations all the way back to Ferguson. What's interesting is how they are operating and how they are operating as partners with Black Lives Matter activists, for instance, as opposed to being the expected as to be the only leaders. And you will have these solidarity movements, you will have faith communities meet nearby in big ways, or you'll have marches as we did this last week in DC, where thousands of primarily Black churchgoers show up on what is now called Black Lives Matter Plaza outside the White House. But the lineage of where some of these figures came from, a lot of the activists I spoke with who've been very present at these demonstrations around George Floyd cut their teeth by going into Ferguson to help make sure that they had a presence there or were at Charlottesville as well. So there's an interesting and very new kind of lineage when it comes to the relationship between these activists and faith leaders. Okay, so we often think of traditional religion as permanent and enduring. Is that also how you see these movements as particular campaigns on the religious left or as so-called new religions? Well, I think one of the things to keep in mind right about now for my book is that the religious left isn't going anywhere. It is deeply involved in the activism you see today. One of the things that we don't pay enough attention to is the fact that these are religious people acting on religious impulses. They deeply believe, they see a direct connection between their activism and their faith. And whether or not you believe that that's a genuine articulation of faith or whether you agree with it, does it make it any less religious and does it make it any less deeply felt by many of the activists I chronicle in the book. And I would expect moving forward into this election season that you will see more of their activism, at least in a virtual sense, show up. I mean, it's worth noting one of the most prominent contemporary progressive activists in general, as well as in the religious left, is Reverend William Barber, the co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, who has their big virtual gathering this weekend. And when Joe Biden delivered his speech, kind of talking to this political moment of surrounding the George Floyd demonstrations, he referenced William Barber in that speech by name. And that kind of tells you a lot about how this group has really started to really occupy a position of prominence, at least among progressive activists who can influence lawmakers, if not among lawmakers themselves. But I will note, one of the interesting things that I only gestured towards in my book, which is what I'm fascinated to see, what all of Tara uncovered, is that there is this equally, sizably, at least vocal group among Democrats who are religiously unaffiliated. If they don't occupy equal space numerically quite yet, that looks like it's going to change in the next few decades, one. And two, they certainly are very vocal. 
And it's interesting that they need, they also deserve attention as well and understood it bears mentioning that they, as Tara knows way better than I do, have deep religious feelings and proclivities as well. And we don't know as much about how they're going to activate in the midst of a political moment. So I'll pitch it to Tara. I'm just fascinated. Again, the United Church of Christ, which is the denomination that Barack Obama belonged to when he used originally affiliated with the church in Chicago, that is smaller than the number of witches that are apparently in self-identified the United States. And those were the 2014 numbers. I mean, since then, I mean, there hasn't been a, a coherent study since then, but even things like the witches of Instagram tag as some sort of barometer has gone a few hundred thousand to 2 million to 6 million to 8 million, give or take. So there's the numbers are still out, but I would not be surprised if it were two or even three or more million at this point. So, I mean, I think what we both, Jack, you and I agree on, and I think where our books are in, in different ways are coming from is this desire to challenge the notion that the American religious landscape is the religious right, evangelical, and maybe a little bit Catholic on one hand, and the godless left on the other. There is the religious left in terms of religion is traditionally understood. There is this sort of spiritual left, one might say, that is not traditionally religious, but still very much driven by religious hunger and sort of spiritual fervor. There are groups that I think it's also worth saying that one of the things that I'm interested in exploring in Strange Rights is that religion itself is sort of fluid. On the one hand, you have people whose, as in the case of 30% of Christians who believe in reincarnation or Christians who use tarot cards, that even when we talk about the religiously unaffiliated versus the traditionally religious, we're already only seeing part of the picture, which is that spiritual tendencies, communal tendencies, political tendencies, as in the case of activists in sort of traditional quote unquote social justice spaces that are blending or or seeing within Christianity a sort of vision of social justice, that these are not disparate groups. These are trends that are intersecting all of the time. So in many respects, these new religions may be here to stay. Well, thanks to you both for these two books, Strange Rights and American Prophets. Each are linked in the show notes, and we'll see you out there on the trail. Thanks for having me. Faith Angle connects leading journalists with the enduring questions raised by religion. Thanks for listening.